And thank you for joining me this afternoon. My guest is Don Jans. Don is the author of The Road to Tyranny, Individualism and Collectivism. Don, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Chuck. So good to see you. So good to be back on with you again. You're doing absolutely. You are doing absolutely some wonderful, wonderful things. Well, I do what I can do. You know, it's amazing what anybody can do now with these uh, technologies. It's incredible. We can go on the air. We can be seen. We can be heard. It's it's an incredible thing, and um, I'm enjoying doing it. Don, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, first of all, before we get into the background, give me a thumbnail, if you will, on the content of this book, uh, The Road to Tyranny. The content describes what the difference is between individualism and collectivism. I go into some uh, a little bit on how individualism began in our country. It actually began back in Jamestown, the very first permanent English colony in, in the New World, and it also began up in Plymouth, which could be called the second. Jamestown had to switch from collectivism, the way they started, because they would not have survived. It would have been a footnote in history. And they said, no, 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 we have to, we have to switch to, to a means where the individual can achieve, where we, where we encourage individuals to achieve for their, for their own purposes and not for the, not for the good of the collective. And then we go up to Plymouth. And Plymouth, a uh, few, few people understand that when, when the pilgrims came to Plymouth, they weren't supposed to go there, first of all. Uh, they were off course. And so they couldn't just get off the boat. And so they had to set up a charter to govern themselves. That's and they right. set up they set up a, a charter. You, you, you know this history. And they follow a compact. Yeah, absolutely. And that said that we're going to be in charge of ourselves. We're going to govern ourselves. And so we began that history um, as early as Jamestown and Plymouth. And, and of course, it, 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 it flourished in, in the in colonies became uh, this 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 um, generation of of self um, of self governing and it became a real real theme with them as well as American collectivism or American capitalism was born. So mm-hmm. I talk about that a little bit and how it came how how individualism came about and how our constitution was set up to protect this freedom. How our constitution specifically, our founders specifically said we want this freedom and liberty to last not only for ourselves, but for future generations in America. And so they said in our constitution, we're going to protect rule of law. We're going to say we're going to have a limited government, not a powerful, big old consuming government, but limited government. And they said in the constitution, here are your powers, government. Here are the powers we, the people, give you the federal government. They went on to say we're going to have a divided government. Why? Not just divided between the three branches, but divided between the federal government and the states. And they said this because we don't want power to become all-consuming within one branch or within one group. We want it to be diverse. We want to protect our freedom. And then they said, we, we the people, we will be the sovereign of our destiny. We're going to be the sovereign. You and government, you will be the servant and you will serve our needs. Well, this is what was established. This is what our Constitution is. And the collectivist hates the Constitution. The collectivist hates the Bible because 
they both go totally against what the collectivist believes and what the collectivist wants. And the collectivist wants simply this. They want a society where everybody conforms to the same thing. There is no um, um, uh, individual thought. We have to believe what the elite tell us to believe. The collectivist also says that we will operate not for the, the, the achievement of the individual, but for the good of what the collective, of what we determine to be the good for the collective. Mm. So I talk about all of these things and how that is being changed and the slippery road on which we are currently traveling and what we must do in order to get off that road, not slow, not slow ourselves on that road, but get off that road and change direction completely. And that's what, that's what the essence of the book is and what I try to accomplish. So I could get back to the essence of what made this country and this society what it is, both in terms of its material success, but also its spiritual success. Now, I don't know a lot about Jamestown, but I know a little about um, Plymouth Colony. I, I, I really write an annual Thanksgiving article for Newsmax or some other paper where I show that um, it was originally a communist experiment when they yes. first landed and that um, this is documented by their first governor, William Bradford, in his diary. And he talks about how the everything was divided up for equal shares and that everyone would contribute to the whole and how how this led to resentment and how women resented it and men resented it and there were people who were taking advantage of it and others who were working harder and they felt demoralized by it. And uh, he even used the word communism in his treatise. It was around even back then. Yes. And um, when they abandoned this idea and they realized that um, every every person, every family would have to have their own plot of land to grow their own agriculture, that's when the that's when they stopped starving to death and they stopped uh, dying and they began to thrive. And of course, the Native Americans like Squanto, who then helped them develop. Their, their colony. But this first lesson was well understood by the original pilgrims, and it did contribute, as did others, to the ethos in America that rights come from the creator, not from the state, which is yes. a very radical idea in this country, and which is an idea that, by the way, is inherent in Christianity, it's inherent in the Torah. And it's something yet that had not really been realized uh, in any formal sense by societies, because before that you had collectivism, you had the divine right of kings who who would act as the agent of God, and that they they would they would basically, you know, people were subjects. There was a collective mentality, and that the ultimate goal for the collectivists was a one world ant colony. Everybody would be actually equal, de facto, which of course would be impossible. And right. if it ever happened, it would be the most evil thing that we can imagine. I mean, attempts have been made in modern times. Stalin, Hitler, we could go over. But the point is that the ethos of the founding fathers and the, the Constitution was described by Thomas Jefferson in the preamble to the Constitution, that being the Declaration of Independence, where he says the rights come from the creator, mm-hmm. not from the state that we're endowed by the creator, by God, the great sovereign, and that we have individual sovereignty, limited sovereignty, and then we grant certain responsibilities to a government 
which we create, to protect and defend those natural rights. This is an idea that was prevalent among philosophers like John Locke and, and Baron Montesquieu and others who influenced the founders, and uh, that, that the government was not the source of rights. It was a radical event. You know, the government did not, the, the, the ruler was not a, a, a divine. Only God is divine in heaven. And that the individual thus has the ability to be sovereign. And the government is there to serve us. I mean, George Washington had a great quote where he said that government is a fearful master that needs to be trained down by the Constitution. You know, which, uh, you know, if you look at the Anti-Federalist Papers, particularly, they were very concerned about even putting anything down on paper because they knew yes. that if you put something on paper and if you describe a right, you're, you're going to, by nature, be somehow restricting rights and that rights to them were inalienable, as Jefferson said. They were organic. They were natural. And that, but they nevertheless went forward and wrote the Constitution, and we're glad they did. And and they codified these rights and further codified them with the Bill of Rights. And so you have government there protecting rights, not granting rights. Right. right. Very different thing than what many of us believe today, and and what young people are taught today, which is Absolutely. that the president. And the Congress will give you something. They, they, they'll give you a right. What are they doing for me? You know, it's a different ethos rather than what is it that you're doing for yourself because the government's protecting your right to do, I mean, to create, to be whoever you are. And that's the essence of individualism is, is that you're able to, to, to achieve, to advance to 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 do the best that you can possibly do now this is being demonized today those those who would achieve are being demonized they as are. being greedy and being being evil and and, and and espousing competition which is horrible but but you you talked about the bill of rights and you talked about from where our rights come and and so often we forget a very critical amendment that was part of the Bill of Rights, and that's the Ninth Amendment. Mm -hmm. We never hear the Ninth Amendment, do we? Right. Well, Don't the thoughts about it. Yeah, both of them. But, and you know, this is—I'm glad you brought that up, John, John, because you know, when people say, "Oh, well, why doesn't the you know you have to the Constitution is is a flexible; it's a living yes. document." I mean, a very close relative of mine who's a student at a very top college in a civics class—that's what she was taught. And, you know, the, the, what, what I would say to that is that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to the Constitution grants the states and the people the right to, you know, engage in any governing powers that are not specifically delineated to the federal government. So if you, if you want to take up creating laws that affect social policy or, or whatnot, you do it at a level. That's the great, I mean, even Franklin Roosevelt referred to the states as the laboratories of democracy. It's at a state level that you can have a state healthcare system, if that's what the people of the state want. That's what Massachusetts can, did. That's right. Or you can redefine marriage, or you could do different things if you must. And, and that it's up to state legislatures who are elected by the, the people of that state 
to debate these things and to craft legislation and pass it on the state level as long as it passes muster with the respective state constitutions. With the federal government really operating within very proscribed guidelines, you know, it's very very limited. Very limited. And 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 I want to. I just want to go back for a minute on the on two things, uh, very quickly. When we're talking about collectivism, we're talking about a, a conglomeration of all of those isms: fascism, fascism, Nazism, progressivism, communism, Marxism, socialism. They're all a part of this, where 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 everybody is to achieve for the collective and not for the individual. And we talk about the Ninth Amendment. And the and the and the, um, uh, the Declaration of Independence, where where we're told from where our rights come, and the Ninth Amendment says specifically, we may have missed some rights. We may not have have talked about all of the rights that come from our Creator, but because we didn't specifically um, uh, uh, say them, that doesn't mean they're not there, and they still are the rights of the people. And the only rights the government has, the only rights the government has, are those that are specifically given to them in the Constitution. Now that's that's just been reversed. And 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 those who would who would say the Constitution is a living document say that no 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 you guys you're wrong. It is the government that gives you your rights, and we give you any and all of your. And and so the whole thing has been turned upside down. And here's where here's 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 the saddest part of it is there are so many people who have bought into this because they've been indoctrinated to buy this concept. Our schools are indoctrinating our kids, just like you had mentioned. That's right. And and this has now become a part of normal America. That every time something happens, oh, what's the government going to do about it? Well, how is the government going to handle that? Now, the, the, you know, you mentioned, I mean, we might as well talk about this because it's in the news, and that is education right now in our, our public school system. Um, it, it has slid toward collectivist ideas uh, gradually over the past maybe century where the purpose of education originally was to teach a young person how to think on their own, how to think cognitively, how to develop their own independence and become a self-sufficient citizen. Whether or not that means they go on to become, you know, a, a great judge or a, a great corporate head, or whether they go on to become a beach bum, that is up to them. That is their sovereign right to take whatever skills they develop and to then apply them to their own life as they see fit. And the ethos has changed since John Dewey and the so-called frontier thinkers back in the early part of the 20th century who were socialists, who wanted to make the education system nationalized and who wanted it to be something that would um, serve the state and move the nation to the left and move us toward more of a a socialistic modality where we would not be taught to think on our own. We would have to become dependent on other. Dewey called this fusion, and he introduced look-say reading as the best means of breaking down the individual ability to think cognitively and move us toward behaviorism. And, uh, you know, the uh, the idea of, uh, you know, getting rid of phonics, which is a natural way to teach English because it's a phonetic language and we, 
we learn to develop a, a, a reflux, which we can mold uh, vowels and consonants into words. Instead, he replaced that with pictograms. You would memorize words as if they were hieroglyphic. And the result is, of course, predictably, that you have dyslexia, you've got ADD, you've got detention deficit problems, you've got social problems, you've got a breakdown in a young person's ability to read properly and to thus think in an organized manner. So they become dependent. This is a very deliberate agenda put forth by Dewey and his followers. This isn't something that, that I'm making up here. This is uh, the book Crimes of the Educators by the late Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld is a very dear friend of mine. He documented, this is his last book, he documents this brilliantly. And so now we have a situation where today you've got social ills at, at, college, at schools. You have kids being given Ritalin in order to control the fact that they're disgruntled and confused and agitated by these education modalities. So they put them on psych drugs. And then, of course, psych drugs lead to things like homicides. It just doesn't end. Now, you had mentioned something else that was so critical. And, and, and I don't know that the American public are aware of this. And, and, they, and they have to be. They absolutely have to be. And it goes back to what our schools are. In my book, I, I, I go back and I quote what a, a, a union leader, a teacher's union leader, and a teacher in, in Oregon said in, in a book, uh, 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 forgive me right now, it's in the book, mm -hmm. of the, name of the, the name of the book. But what he says, Chuck, is he says what we as teachers must do is we must tell our students the evils of capitalism and then have them go out in the community and research it and prove it. Now, that is the exact definition of indoctrination. I will give you the answer. You do your research to prove that answer, as opposed to what education is meant to be. Here is our problem. You go, you research that problem, document your research, and come up with a logical conclusion of your own. In other words, our school systems are now teaching our children what to think and not how to think. Yeah, they've become soapboxes for of propaganda. They're, um, you know, they become it's behaviorism, which was introduced in the sixties. It's you know, the Skinner and his Skinner box and all of this business. And of course, now you have them promoting in in the wake of this horrendous atrocity in Florida, you have them promoting gun control and gun confiscation by using the pain and the suffering of young children and sending them out to. Uh, to advocate the disarmament of society. It is the most despicable and loathsome thing to use children. Children are not fully developed yet cognitively. They, they don't, you know, they, they, they should be protected, not, not given propaganda to use in, in someone else's agenda. Now, putting aside the question of whether or not young people should have AF, AF-15s, I actually don't think they should. I, I, I'm probably liberal in that area. That's beside the point. The fact is that, that to use them, you know, I mean, I would ask, yeah, I mean, I don't want to ask, I don't want to interview, I feel horrible talking about this with young people in a sense, but, do, you know, instead of saying to them, you know, do you want to have a gun-free world, how about asking, because that's not possible, that's like saying, do we want to have a crime-free world? You know, they're going to, if they take away guns, the bad people will have guns. The question, the right question would be, 
do you feel safe going to school knowing that your school is in a gun-free zone? Do you feel safe going to school knowing that no one at your school is trained to handle a firearm and that has that firearm to stop any intruders? You know, those are the questions that we should be asking them, right. not, not using them as, as cannon fodder in an agenda. Now, let's have the gun debate. Let's talk about possible reform to, to uh, things like, like uh, you know, military-style weapons, which I, I actually don't think people should have, frankly. Or I don't, I mean, or unless there's a damn good reason for it. But, but let's not use this as an agenda to, uh, to do what they're really trying to do, which is disarm the entire population. And what do you think? Well, not going to this specific topic. Right. But using this specific topic as an example, the collectivist has always, always used these types of methods. And when you don't conform to their method of thinking, they demonize you. You're a racist. You're a sexist. You're a Nazi. You're, 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 you're something. And we revert to this name calling. And I heard where one, where one um, uh, collectivist said that anybody who is supported uh, the Second Amendment, it's as if they had taken a gun and shot those 17 kids. Mm. Now that's true demonization. That is absolutely, but this is how they, this is how they work. It is how they, they fight. They, it's very dirty. I mean, I've, I've dealt with, you know, the interview, this is Left Right Radio, the name of the show. I've had like a lot of people on the left on my show and they, they will take out, you know, they'll, they'll fight in the street. I mean, they take the knife out and, and it's a, it's a battle. And, and you have to kind of meet them in the field of battle and say, I think that you, anyone who advocates a gun-free zone has had blood on their hands. They're the ones who have left these schools, these children sitting there like, like sitting ducks, you know, unprepared for the realities of life, which is that there are bad people and those right. people are going to get guns, whether you ban them or not, you know, and if they don't have guns, they'll have bombs. I mean, you can't, you know, they're living, they're pushing utopianism. This, oh, well, if we only had a world where everybody had no guns, fine. We don't have a world like that. And we never will. It's never, exactly. It's like saying if we only had a world where there was no more violence, where there was no more robbery. Right. I mean, you know, do, do you lock your car when you come in the house? Do you lock your door? Yeah, because you take basic measures to protect yourself because you understand that human nature is what it is. So you have to, you can never get rid of these. Take measures to reduce them to make it less likely for somebody to go onto a, a school and kill people. You know, you take responsible measures to, to and, and that includes a lot of things. It's a complex subject. You know, they always reduce it down to like a, you know, basic, you know, common denominator. When, when it's really, it, it's very uninstructive, their approach. Well, what, what we know, what we know is that the, the very core of our problem is that we, that we are getting away from the basic elements of, of who we are, how we were constructed. For instance, we talk about these people who are being shot and how horrible this is, and yet we promote the killing of babies before they're born. And we say, we, life has no meaning. Life has no meaning whatsoever, and even to the point where as a child is being born, we can kill them legally. So we're, we're, we're telling our children there is no value. There's no value to life. 
And then we go on and we, we, we talk about our, we talk about living in a, in a, um, a moral world. And yet we tell our kids, but morality has no real definition. Bible has no meaning whatsoever. Morality has no real definition. Morality is whatever you need it to be or you want it to be. And, and so to say otherwise is prejudiced. Absolutely. absolutely. <clears throat> if you say otherwise, then you're a sexist. Then, right. then, then you're a homophobe. Then, then you're then you're anti. You're, you're whatever they deem you should be, so that they can promote their own agenda. The agenda you just you just talked about, this so-called utopia. And and until we are willing, and let's not forget what Karl Marx told us, you have to do. He said, in order to bring about this fundamental transformation that will initially lead to a dictatorship, and then eventually you'll have this utopia. He said, you have to. Mm -hmm. You have to abolish any morality. Morality you can't have. You have to abolish all longstanding principles. What are our longstanding principles? Our longstanding principles really lie in our Declaration of Independence in our United States Constitution and in our Bill of Rights. And Marx said, you've got to get rid of those. Can't have those. And then he says, you have to get rid of any and all religion. So you have to have a, a society that has no rule of law. Everything is arbitrary. There is no real meaning to anything. And this is what we are becoming. This is the road we are taking. This is the road that leads to tearing each other. And the American people don't understand this. And now we have a lot of people who say, well, I'm an individualist. I'm for freedom and I'm for liberty. But they support the collectivist agenda because they're afraid they will be demonized. They're afraid to stand up for what is right. And until they understand this road that we are traveling, I don't think we can change it. Well, I mean, I, look, I, I tend to be an optimist in that their agenda is unnatural, and so it will not succeed. Every, gener every generation going all the way back to Adam and Eve has had to deal with this collectivist movement. It's a dark yes. side of human nature. And they've had their Hitlers. They've had their Stalins. They've had uh, Karl Marx. I mean, we could do the French Revolution. We could look at every generation. Mira. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, 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 the dictators. Yeah. But, but the point is that what is that agenda? I mean, I think that, you know, it's an agenda of earthly power and the, and the gathering of power of people who claim to be, and many of them sincerely believe they are enlightened, that they know yeah. better than you how you should live. That's why they have their nanny state. They want to control your health. They want to control your education. They want to control your welfare. They want to control your property. They want to control even it's, it's even got to the point in, in, in an informal sense in the United States. We're not like national socialism, you know, at least not yet. But where they, where they have this new science where they take out a microscope and they look at you, you know, to find out if there's a racist gene, you know, they call this microaggression. It was developed by the Harvard professor by the name of Charles Pierce back in the eighties. And it is utter tyranny. It's complete control. They only use this weapon against people who oppose their collectivist agenda. And it's something that basically they are penalizing you because of what you might think or what they think you might think. Might think. 
maybe you might think in the future, it's like it's layers of projection in terms of what somebody may think or what they might act or how they might move. It is an utterly tyrannical ability to control the human spirit and to harass and destroy anyone who who stands in the way of their agenda, which is an agenda of power. Now, you talk about collectivism. Collectivism is the agenda, and, and they have, I think that most people who have embraced it have, they, they, it's not conscious. I mean, they're not winning participants. They are, and nevertheless, you know, that, that's uh, ignorance is, I think Martin Luther King had a great quote about this. Willful ignorance is worse than, than conscious evil in many cases. They, they embrace an agenda, as you described, where the ultimate virtue is to give up businesses like private ownership, family, love, commitment, professional relationships, anything that makes us unequal, with the ultimate goal being a new kind of a man that is absolutely de facto equal. There's no, even down to the point where you've given up and sacrificed your own individual identity. And uh, that they believe it's a very bizarre approach, but yet it's also very primitive in that this was probably what early man was like before the dawn of consciousness. This was what, if you take a look at the Bible, this was what the founders of the, uh, you know, wrote about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Their struggle was against this collectivized condition that ancient man was in. I mean, Frederick Engels, who was the financial backer of Marx. He was a capitalist, wasn't he? He was a capitalist. And he wrote a book about this, calling it primitive socialism. And he was right. This is the, it's the most basic form of collectivism where there is a group consciousness. There is not yet the development of the individual sovereign mind, sovereign soul. And the entire struggle in the Bible is that development of that sovereign individual. You know, they rail about idol worship. That's real today because the idol represents a false god. This idea, you know, which, which insists upon complete submission by, by people. It's, it's a form of collectivism that, that ancient man understood and that they're still being used. Yes. And that the, the, the development of human civilization and progress has been our ability to wake up and realize that we are individuals under God. We are sovereign. We have a limited grant of sovereignty by God, who is the ultimate sovereign. And that these people who want to push this agenda, they are the regressive enemy of freedom and of the ability for us to function. And if we have a, you know, nations that have a more free paradigm and a more free society, where individuals are conscious of, of their rights and, and of their sovereignty. You know, those are the nations that are, are kinder and more caring toward others. You know, they love to trot that out as their main calling card um, when, when they push collectivism, that this is what is good for other people. It's good, common good, they say, which is completely false. It's a complete projection. The nation that has done the most for the, quote, common good, has been in history has been the United States. The the institutions that have done most for the quote common good have been corporations. You know that doesn't mean that they're all good. They're not. But you know if you take a look at the aggregate, 
They've employed people. They've created goods and services. They've invented things. They've moved society forward. And yet they're the ones that are targeted as the enemies. And also they hate religion, as you say. Marx wanted to abolish it, opiate of the masses, which was a projection because he was wanting to have an opiated world. Uh, because religion means, at least in the Western context, Judeo-Christian context, and even, I would say, the Eastern context to a degree, that the individual is created in the image of God, and thus the individual has individual consciousness, individual rights that are inherent, and that uh, this is something that Marx and his followers, they despise that. They want to destroy that because it stood in the way of a regression for human civilization back to collectivism. A, a, a free society, a free society requires nonconformity. A free society requires that people not only are allowed to, but actually do think independently of the group. A, a collectivist society requires total conformity requires that we all think alike. And this is what we see going on in the United States today, John. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a definite movement where the collectivist movement is saying, we are going to abolish anybody, anything that doesn't think like we think. We are going to have a totally classless society. And what does a classless society mean? It means we're all alike, we all conform, and we all think the same way. And the movement is not just with the extremes today, not just with Antifa. The, the movement resides in the very halls of Congress. That movement resides in courtrooms. In the Supreme Court today, the essence of conformity is the way the United States must go. If we allow that true basic First Amendment that is so critical to our freedom and our independence, free speech, freedom of assembly, which is being which is under huge attack today. If we allow that to be attacked, and those who call themselves individualists conform to that way of thinking simply because they don't want to be demonized by the collectivist movement, then we are headed for a collectivist society. It has to the change, I believe, has to start in the schools and in the local communities. And the change has to start with the people. I'm gonna go on for one more minute. When we became a nation, when we became a nation, we were going to be a nation ruled by the people. What does that mean? It means we the people will be sovereign. It means we the people, we're going to be in charge of our government. We're going to tell our government what to do. We're going to have our government serve our wants and our needs. And when, when we did this, Europe looked at us and they laughed at us. Remember, all governments in Europe at that time were sovereign governments where the people served the government. Mm -hmm. And we said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We're going to change. We're going to be different. And the people in Europe looked at us and they laughed at us. They scoffed at us and they said, it can't be done. You guys, you're going, to, you're going down the wrong road. The people will not be sovereign because. It takes a lot of work to be sovereign. You have to be interested in what is going on in your state. You have to be involved. You have to take a part in it. And, and the people in Europe said, people won't do that. People won't remain involved 
They won't remain interested. They won't remain in, in a state of understanding what is truly happening. And so, in essence, what will happen to people in Europe told us is if the people are sovereign, what they will in fact do is they will abdicate their rights of sovereignty to the government who will be more than happy to become involved and to dictate to the people what to do. And this is what we've done. We have abdicated our right to be sovereign because, you know, the vast majority of American people are no longer involved. They're no longer interested. They no longer have any idea as to what is happening. And this is why I wrote the book, John, is to hopefully have people pick it up and read it and understand what is going on. And at least, at least with an understanding, they can make an educated decision. They can say, yeah, I, I like the idea of being in a collectivist nation where I don't have to worry about myself, where, where everybody's going to give a full and complete effort, but I'm going to reap the rewards and the benefits where people are going to tell me how to think, where people are going to tell me what to do. I remember being in, in um, Tirana, Albania one day, mm -hmm. talking to some people who had lived there. And of course, this was, I don't know, five, five, eight years ago. And so there were still people who had lived under the communist regime. Right. His parents had. And he said, my parents aren't so sure they like this idea of freedom because when they were under the communist regime, they didn't have to worry about buying a car, what kind, what color they were going to choose, what kind they were going to choose, because they couldn't drive. The government said, you can't have a car. Mm. So they didn't have to make those choices. They didn't have to worry about what they were going to go down to the grocery store and purchase, whether they were going, what brand they were going to purchase or what they were going to do, because they would go to the store and they would be given their week's supply. So yeah. they've made kind no like, choices. It's kind of like the, um, the children of Israel wandering in the Sinai desert for an entire <laughs> generation because they were slaves and because they could not understand or comprehend the institutions of freedom. It took a whole generation to a new generation to eventually rise up and and begin to develop that. And they, only they were ready to enter into the promised land. Now, you talk about the the European aristocracy and how they these are the wealthiest and most powerful people in Europe who control the means of production. They controlled everything in their in their kingdoms. They were, yes. you know, it's kind of like the old guard and that they were. They scoffed at the American ideal of freedom. And the American nation and the American society, going back to colonial times, and this was pointed out by Dinesh D'Souza. I don't know if you've seen his, his stuff, but he's very, very good. Yes, I have, out, and I admire him a great deal. Yeah, America's the first society of merchants and business people and creators, and, and that we honor that. That's who we are. And mm -hmm. traditionally... Europe, and we could go look in India, China, they, they you look down on that. I mean, those are the lower rungs of the, the societal spectrum. And so we were middle-class people, lower middle-class people, laborers, workers. We only had a few millionaires in this country, and they were patriots mostly as well, like, like John Hancock. But, but the point is that, you know, we were people who were thriving, you know, pulling ourselves up at the bootstraps, creating our own lives. And they feared that. They scoffed at that. Eventually, yes. they had a reaction to it called the French Revolution, uh, where they tried to reassert these kind of collectivist, sovereign, you know, powers of people, except remarketed. 
But what, what I'm getting at here is that these same very wealthy people are here today, and they are the liberal elites who are the wealthiest people in this country and who do not advocate, for the most part, freedoms of expression and freedoms of you know, the ability of businesses to start up and, and, and invent and create. And you know, they don't understand sovereign rights of nations. They're into internationalism and collectivism. And, you know, this is the top 1%. These are the wealthiest people in this country. And they're all liberal-leaning. They're all on the left. It's what used to be called the Eastern Seaboard Liberal Establishment. Uh, I had the chance to read, I look every year I look at uh, Forbes magazine publishes the top richest people in America. All the ones that you can identify as having any energy are liberals. You know, in terms of the support for the Democratic Party, which has become really a, a socialist party, or support for democratic or liberal causes. You know, Zuckerberg, you know, Bill Gates, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, Bezos over at Amazon. You know, these are, I mean, they're great successes. I admire what they've done, but they don't side with the, you know, the regular working little guy, the, uh, you know, the, 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 who are seeking some measure of sovereignty. They believe in this big, powerful, overarching government and turning the United States into a province of the world. And, you know, they, they like to say, well, the top 1% are corporatists and, and capitalists. Not really. I mean, they are in the de facto sense because all Americans are. But, but what they advocate is a liberal left agenda. You know, one of the few exceptions on the Ford magazine top 100 are the Koch brothers. Yes. who are more libertarian. And look at the withering attack that they're under. You know, they're exceptions. They're not the rule. Believe me, I mean, you can take a look at it. As you go down the list, you get more conservatives, but it's only, you know, further, you have to go kind of into it. So I guess my question to you is, why is it, do you think, Don Jans, the author of The Road to Tyranny, that these wealthiest of people in this country, these top corporate people, why are they all liberals? Power. Primarily, I believe it's power. If, if, if I'm powerful and I subvert other people, I maintain my power. I become even more powerful. And, and at a certain point, at a certain point, power isn't just money. Power isn't just goods. Power is, power is control. And if I can control something, then I am the superpower. And if I can tell them how to think, how they should act, what they should do, I become even more powerful. And that's not how we were, that's not how we were built. We were built exactly the opposite. Patrick Henry, and I know this, I know this attack is now, is, or this, this quote is now under attack and people, especially the Huffington Post is saying, no, Henry didn't say this. Well, we have pretty good, pretty good sources that he did. He's, I think he put this, in the best light when he said the Constitution is an instrument not for the government to control the people but for the people to control the government lest the government should come to dominate our lives and our interests and that's what power always is about is how can I dominate the lives and the interests we, we, we have Karl Marx Karl Marx who supposedly is the advocate of, of, of the rights of everybody. And yet in his personal life, 
Karl Marx, first of all, he lived as a bourgeois. As a bourgeois. I mean, he did not live at all like or try tried not to live like a proletarian. But he was the most dictatorial individual. If you crossed him in the least, he attacked you. He 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 put you down. He eliminated you from his from his um, circle. The only person he kept, the only two people, well, other than his children, but the only two people that maintained a very close relationship with Marx was his wife Jenny. And I don't know how she did it. It, it, it. It's an interesting, it's an interesting story. And then, of course, Frederick Engels. And this is the way they are, unless they unless they are in total control. You're no good. You can't be around. And that's where I think it is. The, the more the more the more upstart businesses come about, the more independent you are, Chuck, the more independent I am. It means they have less and less control. I think those are very wise observations. It is a an issue of control and power. It's also a reflection of a lack of spiritual belief in a totally. in a higher power. These people believe that they are like godlike. You know, they they've come to you know they, they've drunk they're drunk with their own their own sense of power and and their own success. So they feel that it's almost like every day. I mean, this is you see this meme among very left wing people. It's like every day they they wake up and they walk down Mount Sinai. They're the great gift. You know, they're giving wisdom to all of us. This kind of incredibly blinding, insufferable arrogance of of power and and personality of their own self importance. And, and and this is also this is why the left is involved in hero worship. You don't get that amongst conservatives. We don't worship. You know, they worshipped Barack Obama, for example. The great dear leader, they worshipped Hillary Clinton. I mean, you saw, you know, you don't have that amongst conservatives. We don't feel that way. We admired many things about Ronald Reagan, but we didn't. There was no this cult worship. You know, we were critical of him. We were watching him. We, you know, we're not American nationalism in the conservative sense is a critic criticizing our government, respecting the 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 you know the institutions and, and themselves. And, and the symbols, but but it's not a worship. I mean, they're the ones. You know, this is an ultimate projection. They're the ones that are the hyper nationalists because they worship Absolutely. government. They worship as in replace of God. I mean, they're worshiping the powers of government. Which brings us, since we're reaching toward the end of the program, I want to ask you about Donald Trump. Now, I think that Trump, as as even though as imperfect a person as he is. He really has been a fly in the ointment for the establishment. They did not expect him to come up and win. He's never been liked by these liberal elite top one percenters, the Wall Street crowd. They always hated Trump. And, you know, they more than expected him to lose. We now know that they were spying on him and getting permission and that they were colluding with the Russians in the case of Hillary Clinton and probably Obama to get goods on him and to try to discredit him. And yet he represents a certain quality that reminds us of who we are as Americans. He is a businessman who's very successful. He pulled himself up, you know, and created these incredible businesses. And he is putting America first. I, I know they laugh at that. That's the one thing I think that drives them more angry than anything. And it's a very sensible thing. Just like you put yourself before others then you can help others because, you know, you're the, you know, as, as we talked about, I mean, God is sovereign and you're 
a limited grant of sovereignty, you put your nation before the interests of others. And people have been scratching their head for years, wondering why we don't do this, why we have leaders who talk these elaborate, sophistic, double-talk type language, which Trump never does. No. And yet they're turning interests, they're turning our, our sovereignty over to international agencies. They're engaging in policies like giving Iran a green light to develop nuclear bombs. Why? I mean, they're delivering them pallets filled with cash. Trump has put a stop to this. And I think they despise him for that. It's his policies they hate. What do you think, Don? Well, let's go back. Let's go back to what, a comment that I made very early in the program. The two biggest threats to the collectivist movement are the Bible. Why the Bible? Because the Bible says, no, no, morality is not relative. There are rights and wrongs. There is good and bad. If you harm your fellow man, that is bad. You can't justify you can't justify it. And the collectivist movement needs to justify. They need, they need, they need a moral system that is as flexible as what they would wish constitution was, it would be. Second thing is, the second, the second biggest um, um, threat to the collectivist movement is the constitution. Why? Because the constitution says, no, we're going to follow, again, rules. We're going to have rule of law. Law is going to apply equally to everybody, and you must follow the law. If you don't like the law, you change the law. We're going to have limited government. Why are we going to have limited government? Because big, powerful government always ends up in a dictatorship, always dictates to the individual what to do. Limited government protects the sovereignty of the people. Limited government protects um, uh, your freedom and my freedom mm -hmm. because it allows us to express and so forth. So we have th th these two elements, the Bible and the Constitution. Now, the movement, collectivist movement, for like you said, probably well over a century now, has been to eliminate both of them. They have followed Marx's dictate, get rid of morality, get rid of longstanding principles, get rid of religion. And all of a sudden, we, we had the same type of thing under Reagan, where Reagan said, well, we're going, to, we're going to go back and we're going to pay attention to the Constitution. We're mm -hmm. going to claim there's right and wrong and, and, and try and adhere to this. This is what Trump is doing. Yeah. Some examples. Trump says, DACA. Guys, the Constitution clearly states that it is Congress that has to pass immigration law. That's one of the 26 powers we the people gave to Congress. Congress is trying to abdicate that, that, that role because it's not good for them politically. And Trump is saying, no, 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 no. It's your duty. That's right. That's Even Obama admitted that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that this was a temporary program because he knew that it's constitutionally questionable and it was being challenged on several federal courts. So, you know, the Congress is going to have to come up with some means to address immigration. And that's not the president's responsibility. And this is, and this is what Trump is saying. Let's adhere to these two instruments that you people despise. And so consequently, when he's saying, no, we're going to adhere to the principles that truly bring about freedom and liberty. If you, if you advocate this classless society, if you advocate this collectivist society, you're going to despise this person who's saying, I'm going to undo all of these things that you've done. All of these people talk about Obama. We have to remember that Obama was an extremely successful president. 
Obama was probably as even made, probably more successful than what FDR was because they both knew what their mission was and they both became, became very, very close to fulfilling their mission. Mm-hmm. And Obama, when it's once he told us, he said, your constitution is horrible. He said, it's outdated and it doesn't, it does not address the social issues that we, the collectivists will oppress. We're going to get rid of it. And, 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 and he, and he came close to doing that. And, and now you have somebody saying that's all wrong. No, 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 no. Liberty and freedom he, is what we're he, he, You're talking about a, an interview he gave to NPR in Illinois when he was still a state, local state legislator. And he, the other thing he said in that interview, which is very interesting, is that the way to get around the Constitution was through administrative means, administrative yeah. laws. And that's an agenda that the left has been doing since the early part of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson wrote about this, and who was an avowed socialist, by the way. Yes. He wrote about it in a book that was published in the 1880s, that, that basically powers, governing powers, would have to be gradually transferred from elected officials on all levels to these appointed bureaucracies and these appointed judges and eventually international bureaucracies without necessarily perceptible means. I mean, it would be a gradual, very Fabian approach. It would take many, many decades, if not centuries. These people have enormous patience, yes, but they they've do. transferred governing powers to these bureaucracies. This is why, in a way, a lot of people today are apathetic about getting involved in government, because the government doesn't have the actual governing powers that it's supposed to have out of the Constitution. You know, they say, oh, well, you're, you're, you, you support like a weaker government. Not really. I support constitutional government. And that means that constitutional offices are to assert powers given in the Constitution, not surrender them to these unelected bureaucracies. And to just conclude, this is why, really also why they despise Trump, because yes. he has said that he intends to deconstruct the administrative state which they have been working for over a century to create. So we're living actually in revolutionary times. Very much so. Counter-revolutionary, you might say. Anyway, Don, we've reached toward the end of the program, so I would like you to take the opportunity to let people know how they can get your excellent books, how they can go onto your website, how they can get more information about you. There's two, there's two ways you can do that. You can go directly to my website, it's mygrandchildrensamerica.com, all one word, no punctuation. The easiest way is just search my name, Don Jans, J-A-N-S, and that my, my website will then show up and you can go there. I also write a daily blog. On the, on the front page, if you simply go up to the daily blog and you click um, the menu button, you will see where it says Don Jans blog. The books are on the front page. Um, there's three of them, My Grandchildren of America, which talks about uh, what communism, what Marxism really is, um, my gra- are the Goodbye Constitution, Freedom of America, for which you wrote the foreword, Chuck, which talks about this person who gradually understands what this collectivist movement, this communist movement really is, and then the road to tyranny. And I just received a, um, a, a comment that somebody sent me on the, on the road to tyranny and said, Don, thank you. For, for writing the book, for being factual, for not becoming bombastic in it, but for pointing out these real, real, true 
a devastating aspects that are taking place and leading us down the road to tyranny. That's that's the best way to uh, get to them is through my grandchildrensamerica.com. The books are also available on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. And these are very well reasoned, well researched books that reflect your experiences, Don, over many decades and your thinking. You know, I urge uh, my my listeners to get these books and um, and to enjoy them and give them to their colleagues and family and friends. Anyway, Don, again, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. And uh, take care. It's been such a, priv a privilege, and I hope that we can do this again soon, John.